This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for MakeASkillJack.com, and you can find more writing by me at HittingAJack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at SteveRosePhD.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to Pros and Concepts. Welcome. Today, how about you talk us in for this one, Steve? Well, today we're talking about something I am very interested in once again, and it's called resentment. Do we usually talk about things that we don't find interesting, or are we usually bringing stuff on here that we find boring? Like, what was that? <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I actually never bring anything to the table that I personally find boring, so I guess that's nothing new. <laughs> Yeah, it's just the stuff that I talk about that you find boring is what you're yeah, saying. It's just the stuff that you talk about that I find boring. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that, everybody. I'm, I'm the boring one of us, too. Yes. But the stuff that I talk about, no, it's, it's high quality stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So let's go back. Sorry, I just needed to derail you as soon as you started. <laughs> but what are we talking about? Do you want to go from there again? Well, we're talking about resentment today. And there's, I guess, two different versions of it. There's the French version, which has two S's, and then there's the English version with one S. The French version is often used in more of a cultural critique kind of lens, and the English version is often used in the kind of the popular sense of just the emotion of resentment. And so maybe we'll start with more of the French version and how it was taken up by Friedrich Nietzsche. Look at what that means in terms of a cultural level resentment, and then we'll bring it down to maybe the individual level and look at kind of a psychological perspective as well. How does it sound? Sounds amazing. Okay, so let's define it. Resentment is a sense of hostility, and it's directed toward an object that identifies a cause of one's frustration. And that's from Wikipedia, as we often do, but we can expand there. Our pot of definitions. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's kind of like anger, but something that lasts longer than anger. Anger, you can feel it and then it goes away. Resentment, it keeps coming back. Yeah, like even though an individual level, like resentment is like low-grade anger. Like, I resent that you did that. Like, I'm kind of angry, but I'm not like explosively angry. But like, it's something you probably have been holding on to. Right. Yeah, there's actually a metaphor that distinguishes them I have here that anger is like a fire extinguisher and resentment is like a smoke alarm that just keeps going off. So it's trying to warn you that there's a danger and it's just kind of operating in the background like this annoying fire alarm that's just not turning off and you're not doing anything about it you're just kind of letting it go off whereas anger it usually prompts someone to act and it's usually right in that moment you do something about it it could be an aggressive response it could be an assertive communication but then it's extinguished whereas resentment is when you're failing to act and that feeling just lingers there and it eats away at you. There's a popular quote I like about resentment in, I guess, the therapeutic literature. People often say it. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You have hostility or frustration towards someone, and you keep it in you, and you think about it, ruminate on it, and it's not hurting them. It's just eating away at you. Yeah. I mean, I think that that quote has been used a lot of times for just like anger. I don't think they usually distinguish it specifically as resentment. But yeah, I think like in general, yeah, or that other Buddhist phrase, anger is holding a hot coal waiting to throw it at somebody. So yeah, it's kind of like those things. But like, 
I don't know. I, I found when I was in China and I was trying to find the word in Chinese, they didn't have, or they, they may have one, but maybe not just a, a commonly used one or maybe not a non-literary or non-historical one. But they didn't have a word for resentment. They just told me to say angry, which I was like, but I'm not like full-blown angry about this. I'm just like low-grade, annoyed, or just it's it builds resentment over time. So I think anger can come in many flavors and depending on our cultural context, like that whole chiplessness episode we had. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. We can have it defined in many different ways. It just means like a negative general feeling that is being built over time. And anger is just more of the same thing, but maybe more rapidly built or more intensely felt in the moment that might be more explosive. But I mean, even anger, like we don't have to give into it. We don't have to explode. Even if I am very angry, I can be shaking and like just excuse myself to get away from it so that I don't do something. So I'm just going to say that like, I agree with those definitions you've said, but to me, I think resentment is more about, like you said, the, the long-term, lower-grade form of anger. They're both like in the same vein, though. Right. And, and I guess to even pull it apart even further, though, I mean, Robert Solomon, he actually distinguishes three different levels, anger, resentment, and contempt. And he says each of them are associated with a different level of status. Anger is something that is directed toward an equal status individual, generally. Contempt is anger directed toward a lower status individual. Contempt, disgust is another one that, that's similar. And then resentment is coming from a lower status place to ah, a higher status place. So I it's like coming this. From, yeah, it's a very interesting way to frame it. I really liked that when I heard that. It was, it's that so is useful. Sort of similar. I remember in one of my... This is one professor at the University of Waterloo. His name is Professor Christopher Burris, I believe. He's a hilarious character. He, he wears all black, black turtlenecks. He has mullet, long, white, gray hair. And he studies, like, the darker stuff. Like, his classes are, like, emotionally disturbed children, the psychology of religious, religious experience, the psychology of evil. And the reason I'm talking about him is because of, in psychology of evil, he went off this framework, and I couldn't ever remember who it was. It might actually be the person you're talking about. But he talked about how, like, disgust is pushing something away and below you. It's, it's it's something that is just so contemptible that it may be something you can just destroy outright, which is how propaganda has typically worked, like anything to disease or vermin. So it's interesting that like resentment is kind of the other angle where like you are helpless and powerless and wish that you could do something, but you're you're unable to do so. Exactly. So I think that's a more useful way to frame this because it's not just anger long term or anger light or anger building long term. There's power dynamics, a status that's really important here. And then when we talk about Nietzsche's work, it's going to be really quite clear what he what he's referring to. But it really is coming from this victim status toward someone who is perceived as dominating you in, in some way. So let's get to Nietzsche. What do you know about his work on resentment? I know I've been sharing a little bit back and forth. His work on resentment, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that people often associate him with like the Nazis because of the Ubermensch. They think that has to do with Hitler and all that. I actually was wondering, what do you know what you Nietzsche died? Oh, no. Because I don't think in 1900. So he was far before the Nazis, which means he wasn't. I mean, people, like we were talking about before we got on air earlier this week, there is a line you can see between his philosophy and the Nazi philosophy. But people argued that, I was watching some backgrounds of this specific section, that most dictators need a philosophy to builds their whole thing around and like Hitler was kind of fishing around for somebody that would be like Stalin had Marx and 
Hitler, I guess, ended up kind of choosing Nietzsche, which was also because his sister, who had a bunch of his scraps, like a bunch of his like piecemeal works that were not completely collected into one book, she selectively chose them and published them after his death. She was married to an anti-Semite. She herself was Nazi sympathetic and I think joined the Nazi party. She published his works after his death and kind of made it seem in that vein. But I think a quote that I came across was that Nietzsche himself thought that anti-Semites were, I think, quote, <laughs> the graphic description of, quote, a failed abortion, end quote. <laughs> exactly described the anti-Semites. So he was against a lot of this stuff. And it's, for, yeah. yeah, I think he would have been very resentful of that. I think I just wanted to address that because a lot of people seem to think that he's the end-all be-all of like Nazi ideology or like he very much was in line with that. He wasn't. No, not at all. But in reading his work you can easily see how it can be selectively parsed to reinforce Nazi ideology. You read a paragraph out of context and he sounds highly anti-Semitic because particularly in, in the, the relevant essay of resentment, the genealogy of morals, particularly the first essay, he's sounding highly contemptuous and disgusted by the Judeo-Christian ethics and, and morality that he calls a slave morality. And he says that it's just full of resentment and it created a moral culture of resentment and our western culture just reeks of it and he's very colorful in his language he's like Ugh, bad air bad air it's, it's just <laughs> He's it's very, very yeah, purple prose. Right, to me, yeah. his thing about slave morality was basically calling it sour grapes. Like, you can't have it, so you're like, well, I didn't want it anyway. It's bad to be that, actually. Mm, yes. Yeah, maybe I'll just distinguish them more clearly and we can get into that. That's exactly it. It's sour grapes. But he distinguishes, he says master morality versus slave. It's, it's master morality and slave morality is like this dialect. You can't have one without the other. So master morality is associated more with like the ancient Greeks and the Romans and their values of pride and power, these very kind of conquest-oriented, powerful, strong man type of military ethics. Whereas slave morality is, is often filled with kindness, empathy, sympathy, valuing poverty, humility. And you could see the distinction here between the ancient Greeks and Romans and then kind of the break with the Christians and then they ultimately became the same thing in the end. And that's kind of the, the birthplace of our Western culture is Greeks and Romans mixed with Jews and Christians and they kind of come together in this master-slave dialectic forming a synthesis and Nietzsche says ultimately in the end it was just a slave morality taking down all of the great things in the world and our western culture just stinks of resentment. So let's maybe look at specifically what he's referring to. Yeah, I think, I mean maybe you're just about to get to this but it just seems like you just kind of presented it as like, yeah, one is very dominating and forceful and hierarchical and probably fascistic in its own way of getting getting rid of the weak, calling the wheat from the chaff as much as possible through social murder, as I think Engels would call it, building systems where we just let the weaker ones die or the people in bad positions just die through inaction or building a system that we know they're going to do badly in and just letting it happen. And it's weird though, because like he's painting the the one side that we would see as being positive, like being empathetic, being caring for the people, not crushing people, not building a system that only the strong can survive and everyone else can go die. So I'm interesting how you're going to explain and pull this out of the fire because it seems <laughs> it seems like it's very hard to be like yeah the slave morality ooh bad because it sounds like the one that's going to be like more modern sensibilities as I guess he if he's right I guess but I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing so what's wrong with kindness empathy sympathy humility and poverty what's wrong with this stuff yeah how do we pull this out of the fire and I don't necessarily think he's he's completely right 
if you're going by the best versions of Christianity. I would be very interested to speak to a historian of Christianity, particularly focused on Nietzsche's era and context, because there's so many versions of Christianity, it's hard to know what he's speaking to specifically. Yeah, because also like best versions is like very highly subjective. And I mean, if we look at like, I don't know, the Protestant work ethic, we've talked about the flaws of that in the past about how like God rewards those who are working hard. So the wealthy are inherently morally superior. But if we move past that, like, I guess it's all an ethic about hard work and putting the work in so that like God's kingdom can be on earth kind of thing. So like, that's not a bad thing to do that. So like, that doesn't seem like the Protestant's section would be what he was talking about specifically, do you think? No, because that, that Protestant ethic was very much kind of an American development. But what he's referring to would be, I don't know what was going on at the time. There was a lot of reformations happening. And so maybe let's look at the characteristics to pull it out of the fire a little bit. Because I, I can't speak to exactly his, the exact specific historical context he's referring to. I, I don't I don't know that much right now. But he pretty much favors master morality. Clearly, by the naming alone. <laughs> Clearly. And he says that it comes from the classical virtues of the noble man. And what is good is what they say is good because they are dominant and strong and powerful. And that which is bad is kind of like the, the vices of the rabble. You know, it's just like, oh, you know, the unsophisticated rabble, the peasants or whatever. That's the master morality? That's, what's, that's what they consider bad? Yeah, that kind of thing. So like slovenliness, drunkenliness, lustfulness? Not necessarily, but it, it could be. And he says those things are not evil, they're just bad. They're just unsophisticated. Whereas when Christianity becomes dominant, it's not just good versus bad, it's good versus evil. So the rabble is not just like... They're kind of uncouth. They're actually evil. From the slave morality perspective. From the slave morality perspective. Uh, but, okay. what is, but what is the rabble? It's not the poor. It's the rich. It's the dominant, the powerful. And those people are the evil. And the slave morality says, we are good, they are evil, and we are basing our morality as the opposite of what the dominant morality is. So by nature, it's reactive. So what I'm hearing is that he likes master morality because even though it sounds to our ears, especially post-World War II and post-fascism's existence, basically, it seems like we hear echoes of that, of the Nazis. But what he was saying was that it was more like a stoic society where it's like, these are the ideals that we want to aspire to. If you fall short of those ideals, you're not worthy of execution or getting rid of. You yeah, can you're still, not evil. You're just yeah, you can still move up. You can still repair yourself. Whereas the slave morality is like, these are the best things. And if you fail to do these things, then you are evil and deserve elimination. Yeah. And it comes from a position of weakness, of resenting the things that the dominant group has and therefore saying, well, we don't want that anyway. Sour grapes. There's the sour grapes part. And then it puts it into an afterlife. So it's like, well, we don't want riches and and being a king right now. We'll get in the afterlife. So they still want it. It's just they don't want it now. (laughs) And, and, And Nietzsche says, well, they just don't want it now because they're weak and they can't get it. So they're resenting it and they're just saying, well, we're going to get ours in the afterlife. That's when we're going to get the kingdom. You notice the word kingdom there of heaven. It's kind of rejecting earthly versions of that. This is very confusing because Christianity very much was operating in kingdoms and Catholicism very much so in Protestantism. So I don't really know. There's a lot of tangled messes here. Oh, so? I'm not sure I see the tangled messes. What do you mean? I don't see how these are connected to the things you just said, the kingdoms and the tangled mess. Because in rejecting the the 
rich. I mean, they really are the rich. The kingdom? The kings, you mean? Or yeah, the, the aristocracy? Yeah. It was all very Christian. After you know the Roman Empire was taken over by Christianity, and then that became dominant in Germany and then the British Empire. I don't think either of us knows our history well enough, especially European history. Not specifics, but well enough to know that even today, any kind of reference to the medieval era when there were like kings and queens and castles and knights, that's all Christian stuff. Largely. And so in rejecting wealth and dominance, it's, it's interesting because they are, they, they really became the dominant culture. So you're saying that he was pointing that I was like the slave morality, but then it somehow ended up in, on top. Well, the thing is slave morality, he's not saying that they have to be the bottom rung. He's saying that this is their system of morality. So the top people can have it. And when they have it, they see the people that are not good by their definition as evil and worthy of extermination, which actually makes more sense. Now that I think about like the religious right right now, because it seems like they often want to do away with gay people or people who are not living the ideals that they want everyone to live by. So yeah, I guess that makes sense. It is arose from slaves or at least the lower class, not necessarily continuing to exist in the lower class. Exactly. And that's, that's how we untangle the mess here that it arose from Jews and Christians in Nietzsche's work. He's talking about the history of Western culture specifically. So genealogy, like doing a family genealogy, you're not doing a history of the world and religions. You're just doing a history history of Western culture. And the Jews and the Christians were very much these marginalized groups in the Roman Empire. And so there was Roman and there's Judea and there was like the country folk. And like Jesus grew up in around the country, kind of really the oppressed people. And he was going around spreading just hope for people who were highly marginalized and oppressed, you know, give Caesar what is his. I mean, he was basically like a communist socialist, very far left. Like by today's standards, he would be completely appalled by what a lot of the churches become. I think the Pope now is actually more in line with Christ and it's pissed off a lot of people as a result. Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's where this, I think Nietzsche is referring to this morality is coming from, is this reactive, revolutionary spot. And then Judeo-Christian culture overtook the Greco-Roman culture. And although it's dominant, it's a slave morality in a dominant position. Yeah. There we go. I mean, that sounds contradictory, but it's not. It's just like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah just it originated here and then it ended up in a different place. Yeah. And so I want to read a quote from the genealogy of morals and it gives you a flavor of this. He says, slave morality from the start says no to what is outside other a non-self, and this no is its creative act. This transformation of the glance which confers value, this necessary projection towards what is inside of back into itself, that is inherent in resentment. In order to arise, slave morality always requires first an opposing world, a world outside itself. Psychologically speaking, it needs external stimuli in order to act at all. Its action is basically reaction. That's slave morality? Yeah. Okay, so I guess if we're seeing this as like a, a dichotomy here between slave and master. Master morality to him is to seek out what one wants to seek and to create the things that one wants to create, not slave morality. Yeah, so it's like noble virtues. It's like, this is good because I say it's good. It's not a reaction I to something I have decided else. that this is good. Like, I mean, the Ubermensch is another thing where I only have cursory understanding of it, where he's talking about how it's somebody who has challenged their given values and challenged a lot of the beliefs they've already had, and they are going through and deciding the things that they find 
find valuable because they find it valuable, not through social influence or other what other people have regarded. They, they have their own assessment of these things. So I guess that makes sense because it fits with master morality being like, these are the things that I aspire to and find virtuous and I will pursue them as much as possible. And you can come along and rise up with me. If you don't, that's fine, I guess. It's not, it's not evil. It's just bad. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're, you're doing yourself a disservice and everyone else around you a disservice, but you can choose to do that. Whereas slave morality, I guess, is just like, yeah, I guess he, as he sees it, the creation of it was in response to not getting the things that they want. So he's seeing it like from its beginning, its inception until whenever he was writing, it was always in reaction to the things that it didn't have or would have wanted if it got it, but like didn't get. So they're just kind of seeing like, these are the things we want. Oh, they're doing that. No, bad. So like the reactionary right, I guess. Yeah. No is its creative act, he says. I like that phrase. I mean, I wonder how Sartre would think about that because he's all about like the most freedom you can have is in saying no, basically. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder. But it's not very creative. It's just like aspiring to, uh, I guess, some, I don't know, platonic virtue is good. And then the slave morality is like, no. It's the opposite. <laughs> no. The yeah, opposite. Like no, no to progress. No to this. I don't like this. No. 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 And, and we can think of like Socrates and, and Plato writing about Socrates, like the unexamined life is not worth living. Like that philosophical process of, of reflection that is so highly valued in, in the Greeks is really that spirit of that master morality. You are the actor. You're the main character. One may say that main character energy. Which we don't want to like fall into the whole NPC thing. Like <laughs> the right talks about how like everyone but them is an NPC. So like they can do it. It's like solipsistic. Like they're the only one that matters. They're the main character. There's a whole subreddit on that being like, <laughs> being like main character. I am the main character, I think is what it's called, where it just like it shows people being dicks in public and like getting annoyed at other people for just existing in public spaces. <laughs> I love that stuff. It's like hilarious, but it's also cruel at the same time. So back to this. Nietzsche is very much about being exceptional, if you haven't noticed. And he says that slave morality is just poisoning Western society with mediocrity. That's his big bone to pick with it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know the history of North America well enough. I know a bit, I guess. I don't know if I agree, because like the US, well, around World War II and just before it, were like very innovative and very leading in a lot of different stuff. They said like, these are the ideals that we have. This is what it means to be American. As Americans, like we'll take all the weak and the hungry, the huddled masses. We'll do all these things. You can come here and make a great name for yourself. Everyone has a chance. I think bankruptcy was something that they kind of invented because in the past there was just debtor's prison. So you'd basically have to go and be like a penal slave for a while until you could pay off your debts. Whereas there they allowed you to start a business, try some big risks, take some chances and see if it works out. And if it doesn't, then I guess you'll be bankrupt. Sure, it'll hurt your chances of getting further investment in the future. But if you're able to, you can keep trying again and not just be completely screwed. Whereas in the past, in Europe, and Asia, as far as I am aware, if you tried and you failed, that was it. You're done. And you've also disgraced your family in the process. So America was good for helping these innovations. But then I think when they became the dominant power, because like even then they were Christian, right? But like when they became the dominant power, they kind of got, this is going back to the, our episode on decadence, kind of slovenly and fat and happy for too long. And now it's like those ideals are not being lived up to anymore. Now it's much more slave morality, especially from the Christian right. But I don't know, it's odd because you could see now looking at the things you can see slave morality pervading all of it. But that wasn't always the case. I think North America was this shining beacon on like shining city on the hill thing, I guess the US specifically for quite a while, and then they stopped. So it shifted sometime. Right. And this is why I think Nietzsche's critique is highly contextual. As he says, it's a genealogy of, of morals, which is super contextual. It's not just a history of the world Western culture. A genealogy is like, I'm going to choose this particular family lineage and follow that. And so maybe he was criticizing the people around him and it seemed to fit. But I think when looking at America, it's this whole unique thing. It's very different. 
Yeah. So what, I guess the late 1800s Germany, I don't really know what was going on at that time, but I guess, yeah, they were heavily Christian. Do we know what kind of Christian they were? I want to say Lutheranism. I don't, I don't want to, that I don't even want to speculate. Sense. That sounds right. But yeah, feel free to email us and let us know. We'll put in a correction. Right, right. Yeah. But when Christianity comes to the U.S., it just takes on this whole new spirit Max Weber talks about as the Protestant ethic. And it doesn't sound very reactionary. It is in a sense that it was literally reactionary against the monarchy. And in that sense, you can say it is. But I'm also thinking about like, <laughs> when you say that, sure, that's one strain. But as like one book I read, I think it was Chris Anderson's book on American hysteria, I think it might have been called. But that one was talking about how America was this place that was very much a combination at the very beginning of like rubes, people who can be taken advantage of, and charlatans, a lot of it. And also they're very religious because they saw it as a place like a proselytize, like a spread their religion. But the reason was because like, imagine you are a, like a low class person in like medieval, well, not medieval, but like, yeah, I think 1800s-ish, 1700s. Industrial Revolution. 1700s, mid-1700s, because it was like 1776, I think the US was founded. So 1700s, and you hear like, oh, there's this amazing land. You can go, you can be super rich. It's super easy. It's adventure. It's great. Don't worry about it. It. And then the people that believe this are going to be the ones that are like, oh, really? <laughs> like, the skeptical people are not going. <laughs> they're not, they're like, uh, yeah, okay, then I'll wait a little bit and see how it goes. Or the people that are doing well and really established are not going. So, in a sense, yeah, it is, it is coming from more of a disenfranchised group. And it very much is the Scott Irish, which forms a lot of the basis of the American culture, particularly the South and in the Appalachians. But that whole spirit, those were very disenfranchised people. But hold on, I'm just pointing out there's a, there's a juxtaposition here because you're right, the Protestants were not like that. But then like the Mormons were kind of this more bizarre offspring of North America having their own prophet that apparently said that Jesus was in North America and a bunch of very counter historical things that they ended up having. I don't actually know too much about what their beliefs are other than like going door to door and having to not drink or imbibe any psychoactive substances. But like according to work, I don't, I don't actually know how they relate. But it just seems like America is like this big, complicated place even from its get go. So yeah, and I don't think that Nietzsche's critique of Christianity is really a blanket solution here. We need to pull apart. Let's just say there's resentment everywhere and we just need to know how to find it. And it can be religion, not religion, or the right or on the left. Actually, now that you're saying this, it makes me think of like the pseudo-religious cults that I've brought up many a time. They do seem to often be based off of some form of resentment towards something, I guess. Right, right. Like the incels are definitely heavily resentful in this way against groups. I don't know if vegans would be that. Some of them, I'm sure, have some resentment against people treating animals cruelly, but that doesn't seem like a punching up situation. CrossFit, did you see any resentment there? I mean, resentment of obesity, of fatness, I guess, of being lazy, of not following Spartan ideals, maybe. Right, right. And as we're talking through this, I'm wondering, like, what's so bad about an oppressed group trying to advocate to for itself? Yeah. Do you have an answer for that? Or are you provoking yeah. an answer from me? Okay. I have part of an answer, and I think getting stuck in a victim identity and it being an unproductive one that doesn't lead to actual change. But let's say it actually does, though. Like, it leads... Then it's been good. No, it's not. Because think about the person that was, like, always bullied in high school. And if you suddenly gave them superpowers, they're not going to be good with it. They're going to go and kill a bunch of people and be a horrendous user of this power. It's, it's because of the resentment, like he's pointing out, the slave morality. If you gave them power, they would destroy and do the, the absolute worst atrocities because they believe that they're justified in doing so. So how does a victim of bullying advocate for themselves? I don't know. Like, that. that's a little more granular learn difficult. I guess if we were to take Nietzsche's stance, it would be to follow their ideals and to live the life they have, see what their values are and living according with those, but not to be holding on to this constant anger and resentment where they're going to be pushing people away and not getting what they want and causing a lot of the problems that 
they are saying other people cause to them. I love it. That's it. It perfectly in line with stoicism and also acceptance and commitment therapy. They're both based in stoicism as well. Yeah, pretty much in Eastern philosophy. But it's clarifying your own values from a place of being the active agent and acceptance of letting go of that which is beyond your control. Serenity. Serenity, yeah. So victim identities as being unhelpful because they get you stuck in resentment. And when you actually do make a change or get power, you're just kind of annihilating the other side. (laughs) You're going to be the worst of the things that you hated. Very vengeful, yeah. Yeah, I guess I don't know if this ties into his whole thing of like be beware of like battling monsters for you will maybe become one yourself in the process. Yes, yes, no, exactly. I, I like a quote by Jordan Peterson, and this is more in his earlier stuff, not this more recent stuff, but his kind of tough love line of do something or grow up about resentment. He says resentment is a very useful learning tool. It teaches you what you need to do or let go of. So like anger, it's a self-protective emotion. It's there for a purpose. It's useful. You know, no bad emotions, just useful or non-useful ways of dealing with them. So the positive part of resentment is that it's telling you something. It's telling you information. Something needs to be done. The smoke alarm is on. Go put out the fire. And let's say that there's nothing you can do. And like the world has some permanent smoke alarm going off in the heavens that we just have to live with. You mean as it is currently with like the environment and a bunch of shit? Like just say like a literal beeping from the sky (laughs) and nobody can figure out how to turn it off. That's when... And acceptance comes in. So when Peterson says do something or grow up, the doing something is taking action to actually resolve the problem. But if you can't resolve the problem, growing up is kind of the acceptance path. There's two paths. You do something about it or you accept it. And so, if, you know, it's like tinnitus. If you lived with a constant ringing in your ear, as actually Stephen Hayes, the founder of Acceptance Commitment Therapy, does, the do something about it or grow up is, is like, well, do you seek a treatment for that? Can it be treated? And if not, if you actually can't, the growing up, quote unquote, is is an acceptance piece. I don't like his packaging though, because like I've dealt with people in this situation where they have a ton of resentment and they don't tell them to grow up. (laughs) No, it's like, (laughs) this is where like, it's a very trite thing. And in the past I would roll my eyes at anybody saying it, but the only solution is love basically and like compassion and being empathetic. Because if you just say, Hey, grow up, like they're going to be like, that's easy for you to say, you bourgeois pig, blah, 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 like or whatever, whoever their enemy is. It's going to stoke the resentment. Yeah. Yeah. You're just going to trigger that response. You need to basically get down with them and be like, okay, like, let's talk about this. What is it that's resentful about it? Like incels, for instance, seem to think that if they just got laid, then that would solve all their problems. And it's like, it's not that magical. It's enjoyable, sure. But it's not like it's going to revolutionize your life. Like you go out and have fun, you get laid one night and you come back, like your life has not gotten substantially better. Maybe like your mental health did, but like for a short stint. And like a lot of these things, I think that even if you gave them exactly what they wanted, maybe not like power or something, but they blame all these things on these factors. While they may be not entirely wrong, they may actually be founded in reality, building their entire identity around that makes it so that you're going to end up being very unhappy. But you can't say this directly to the people. It's kind of like Plato's allegory of the cave. Like people inside the cave can't understand anybody that's left it. And once you leave it, you go back and you try to talk to them. They don't recognize you or hear the words you're saying. It's the curse of wisdom or knowledge in general. And so you have to find a better way to do it because Peterson... He's too tough love. Yeah, tough love. It's like tough love generally only works when, well, one, you kind of are fine with them suffering or two, like if they go away and the world beats them up a bunch and then they see 
see that they were right. But it's like you didn't save them from being beaten up. You didn't really help them that much at all. They would have maybe come to the same conclusion, but later they looked back and said, oh, you were right. But it's like you didn't help them. What's the point in giving advice if it's not useful ahead of time? It's like Plato's allegory of the cave. You don't just shout into the cave, grow up, everyone. What do you do? Like, so Brene Brown, she has an animation on this, Sympathy versus Empathy. You meet them where they're at. You go into oh, the it's cave. Her? That's who I was referring to the yeah, other day? You okay. it the other day, yeah. Brene Brown, Sympathy versus Empathy. Literally this cartoon of this character going into the cave, meeting the people where they're at, empathizing with them. And that's what, you know, real change comes from, as we talked about in many episodes, particularly motivational interviewing. But Peterson does have that bit of a tough approach to it. Yeah, and that's the conservative approach, which is often less useful. It's more authoritarian. Like, do this because I said so. I'm not going to explain myself to you. Why should I have to? You're beneath me. I will tell you what is right and you will listen or else. It's kind of the underlying stance a lot of time in these kind of hierarchies. And like I said, that often, if you're saying this to somebody who's not already kind of beaten down and in a way that I don't think the right would even want, they're probably going to resist and fight and rebel. And then they'll end up after years of struggling and making big mistakes and maybe doing something they can't undo. Then maybe they'll figure it out. But it's like, it's too late. What was the point? Yeah. Anyway, back to resentment. I think we, I don't know if we're, are we still on it or are we still in line we with the research? We're talking about how to talk to someone who's resentful. And that's very much related. Because I talk to a lot of people in a day and there's a lot of resentment in the world. And it very much is a poison. And I can't just say, oh, you know that stuff you're telling me right now? Just grow up. You know, I can't say that. <laughs> You'd be a terrible counselor. You know what you got to do? You just got to grow up. You just got to accept it. You know, all these problems you're pointing out, you're the cause of them. You got to pick up yourself by your bootstraps and get going. Ooh, ooh. That would be the perfect session. You definitely wouldn't lose clients that way. No, no. But it's a poison. And you sense it when it's happening. And it can spiral. People can really spiral in it. Yeah, because it becomes self-fulfilling, right? Yeah. People can live in it for years. They may never leave Their it. whole lives, yeah. And really, the epitome of this is something called vulnerable narcissism. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Some people say covert narcissism. I mean, you know I've heard of it because we talked about it, but the audience <laughs> saw that. And so please indulge me. What is this covert narcissism? You know, I know it. You don't have to pretend I don't know it. You can We can just say like, oh, you remember that thing I mentioned? I forgot that we talked about it, actually. I'm not putting on an act. <laughs> what do you know about it? I don't want to mansplain it to you. Oh, yeah, because is that possible to another man? I guess they choose to pick positions where they can be gaining attention or sympathy, kind of like Munchausen, kind of like you might malinger pretending to be sick to get attention or maybe helping people so you can get attention like running a charity. You're not doing it because you want to help people. You're doing it because you want the accolades of having helped people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's right. Well, it presents as a constant state of disenfranchisement. Like the world is not fair. This bad thing's happening to me. This thing too. And oh, and I can't do this. And oh, I need help. And it's just a constant complaining is really is a word for it. But it comes from a place of entitlement. So that's the key right there. Like grandiose narcissism, which is highly entitled, showy, grandiose. What we usually think of when we think of narcissism. Yeah. This is the same thing, but flipped into a victim stance. So it's like all of these bad things and I deserve more, but the world can't give it to me because it's not fair. And I'm better than everyone, but I just didn't get a fair shot. And I'm mad and this thing and everyone's terrible. And I'm the only one that knows. And it becomes very narcissistic, but from a victim stance. And, and that I think on the psychological level is the epitome of this resentment that Nietzsche talks about. Do you think the people, because there's a certain type of people I'm thinking of, and I'm wondering if they would be considered 
considered vulnerable narcissism, which are the people that if you ever ask them, how are you? Oh, you will regret it because they will just go on and on about all the problems in their life and all their medical history and all the things that are going bad and wrong. Do you think that would be that? Or do you think that maybe just Munchausen? I don't know if it's narcissism. It's like the key part of it would be it's coming from a place of entitlement and superiority from a victim position. Oh, I'm better because I've been suffering so much? Not that. It's I'm better and I'm suffering so much because I wasn't given a fair shot and I'm entitled to it. The world cheated me, basically. Yes, it's that. That's that's the key part of it. I should correct it, what I just said. Munchausen is when people are faking being sick or causing themselves to be sick on purpose. So the people I'm describing could actually be sick and just want a lot of attention for it. I don't know what that would be, frankly. It could be a lot of different things. It could be some form of anxiety. It could be an obsessive compulsive version of health anxiety because your obsession is ruminating on it and your compulsion is to have to say it to someone to get reassurance. So it can manifest in all these various different Seeking ways. validation also. Yeah. But I think when you bring in that narcissistic lens, it really goes into that resentment spot. It's not just in like a fear response, like a health anxiety version of that would be. It's not just fear, it's resentment. It's holding on to anger, just drinking poison all the time, really. So I don't know if we directly answered it very well to people who are listening. How do you talk to somebody? Okay, we've acknowledged that like we'll find somebody who's very angry at a very specific topic. All the problems in the world lead back to this one thing. It's all this one group's fault and they're demonized, they're evil, they're doing it on purpose. How do we talk to these people who are clearly putting people off away from them? Like say an insult, for example, who's talking about how women hate guys like me, blah, 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 and they just blame everything on women. How do you speak to these people to get them out of that? You just got to meet them where they're at and listen and maybe not say a single word for a long time. <laughs> and if there's a gap, you just kind of reflect back your perception of what they're saying. Clarify the things you didn't understand. You pretty much just try not to change them because it's just poison spewing out. And maybe if they can do it long enough, they get enough out, they trust you enough that maybe they'll be willing to hear something. But it takes a lot. It evokes an image to me of, you ever seen Spirited Away? No. In the bathhouse is a character called No Face, who it's a bizarre kind of character trajectory, but they end up eating tons and tons of stuff. They just constantly consume and consume and consume. And they are paying everybody in gold, so they're like treated very well. The gold ends up being fake, but they end up kind of eating some of the staff as well. And the main character has to, I think she gives him some sort of medicine and the medicine causes him to regurgitate all of it, spew it all back out until it's okay again. They're back to their more normal self and that's when they're, I guess, more peaceful again. And I think that's kind of what it feels like based on what you're describing, talking to these people. You need to just let them continue to spew out this poison and just like get it all out like somebody who's overdosed on something. I want to add a caveat here. This is from a counselor perspective. If you're a family member, probably don't do that because you're going to sacrifice your self-care and personal boundaries and you're going to be exhausted. Only do it if you can handle it. And I think from a therapeutic perspective, you can have the distance that it's not going to be directed at you because a lot of the people that are living these resentments will take it out on the people around them. But I guess I've dealt with this before and generally you have to try to understand what they're saying and let them feel understood and feel related to. You don't combat any of these things. You just try to say it back without bias when you're reflecting as clearly as you can exactly what they're saying until they basically are run out of fuel and they've said that's right enough times like that they feel that you got them then and only then will they start to be feeling open to talking about their doubts and their philosophy or the gaps that they aren't sure about or the places where they'll actually be willing to get feedback and not necessarily if then and only then because maybe they never get to that spot so if you find yourself with more of a family member type of a situation and they don't get to the that's right and they're willing to listen and it's just deeper and deeper and it's just an energy vampire situation that's where you do a little bit of like oh yeah okay and they're like oh, okay i'm gonna go over here now i just got something okay oh thanks yeah good to see you yeah you kind of just you have to shut that down
down in a very non-offensive way. Or in other instances where I've done this, where trying to understand the person end up making them more angry. Me doing reflections, trying to say what they said back to me ends up making them angry. And then me saying that I don't understand, can you please elaborate on that, makes them angry still. And every move you make makes them angry. There's nothing you can do. You have to get out of there. But yeah, I think, but like even still, this is not their job. And like, ideally everyone could do this, but it's not an ideal world. So I think the goal, if you're going to do that, the goal is to be able to get them to be open to talking to somebody professionally about this. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Not trying to go into codependence as we talked about before and becoming trying to over help someone who's just in this vulnerable narcissistic place and you're just exhausted and you lose yourself in it. And then now you become the resentful one because that's very common with codependence is you're choosing resentment over guilt because you feel guilty for not listening or not being there for them. And instead of saying no, you accumulate resentment and now you've got the poison. So that's something to watch out for. Yeah, you're mutually poisoning at that point. Yeah. So yeah, is there anything else you wanted to cover? The one thing really quick is I'm in the addiction field and 12-step work or like Alcoholics Anonymous, they really talk about resentment as being the core culprit in alcoholism. And it seems to be a very common one. And they have their own kind of remedy for that. And that's the 12 steps. You're actually doing the process of those steps. But what they say is the solution for this is looking at your own mistakes. Because resentment is other oriented, as we talked about before. It's always in reaction to looking at someone else. In a way, it's a lot of psychological projection. You're finding faults in everyone else but yourself. And you're doing it almost as a way to not look at yourself often. So the 12 steps very much gets you to this humility of being able to look at your own faults, mistakes, moral failings, and to really process your moral inventory of wrongs. There's making amends as a part of that as well. And coming to this unselfish, honest place where you can constructively take action and do something in terms of healing, changing parts of yourself, accepting things that are beyond your control. I mean, that's all part of that serenity prayer as well. And so the 12-step model does have a process for dealing with resentment as well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, good. And I want to go back to Christianity because I don't want to like make it seem like we're just saying Christianity is bad and slave morality and resentful. Because if you go right to the core Jesus stuff, like he's got some really good stuff. It does come off as like a form of master morality in a way. You can interpret the same line in two opposite ways. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You interpret that as a resentful phrase. You can be like, oh, he just hates the rich because he's poor and he can't get money and it's kind of a reactive morality. Or you can interpret it as the rich man is kind of like the entitled resentful one who kind of expects things. I mean, he could be saying that or he could be saying that like by being in a position of privilege, there's a lot more burden on your shoulders to do right and that you can do wrong a lot more easily as most people do. But also for a historical context of that particular quote, he wasn't talking about the eye of a needle as a sewing needle. The eye of a needle in that context is a specific kind of gap that was very small in a wall and camels could fit through there. It was just difficult. Like they had to go on their knees to crawl through. So it's not as impossible as the phrase sounds. Interesting. I didn't realize that was part of the context. Yeah. And also like the Bibles were going by, it's like, which version, which translation? Translation is complicated and things get put in bad order by the translator sometimes. Right. So I just want to kind of pull that phrase out because it can be harnessed in a very resentful fashion. Yeah. You can see it both ways. Or you can use it kind of like the 12 steps would use it. Saying that this rich man kind of as the entitled man, the selfish, the projecting one that's looking at everyone else but themselves, man. And not necessarily monetary, you know, like because you have money, you're bad. But as you said, it opens up more opportunity for various temptations. It does also make me question though, because like resentment, as you said, was like resentment of punching up. So how would a rich man, who is he, who's more powerful than them? I guess the government 
or somebody? Like, who is he resentful at that he doesn't have? Right. Who is the rich man resentful of? Well, if he's a vulnerable narcissist, he's saying that even though he's a millionaire, it's not fair because his business partner did that. Oh, yeah. Like the petty squabbles of rich folk. Or maybe there's always a bigger fish. 